Ever since the presidential election on November 3rd, the nation has been in turmoil. We've heard accusations of voting fraud and demands for nullifying the election results, met with denials and counter accusations that it is President Donald Trump, not the Democrats, who is undermining our democracy and attempting to steal an election. On January 6th, a mass pro-Trump demonstration on the National Mall in Washington, D.C., took place as the results of the Electoral College were being formally presented and challenged in Congress. The world watched in horror as numbers of the demonstrators peeled away from the demonstration and swarmed over the Capitol, invading the Senate chamber and congressional offices. One of the rioters, a 14-year Air Force veteran, was shot by police during a chaotic confrontation. She died later that evening. Since then, three others have been reported dead. It took several hours for order to be restored and for the Capitol building to be secured. I'm Nino Scalia, host of Madison's Notes, and we're joined today by Robert P. George, director of the James Madison Program and McCormick Professor of Jurisprudence here at Princeton University, and Alan C. Gelzo, senior research scholar in the Council of the Humanities at Princeton and director of the James Madison Program's Initiative on Politics and Statesmanship. We'll discuss the state of our union, how these fraying bonds of affection might be restored, and what the future might hold for this great nation of ours. Professor George, Professor Gelzo, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Nino. Yes, thank you, Nino. Professor George, I shudder to ask this question, but I fear it must be asked. Are we still one nation? Or have we become two nations or splintered into many nations, pursuing political ideologies which can no longer be reconciled within the American political system? We are a fractured nation. We are a polarized nation. We are a nation that has forgotten the core principles that are at the foundation of our unity as a people. Remember, the American nation is exceptional, Nino. Exceptional not because we are morally better people than other people in the world, no. Exceptional because our nation, unlike most other nations in the world, is not a nation. We are not a people whose unity is based on blood or soil or devotion to throne or altar. No. Our unity, those core principles I was talking about, the basis of our unity, are principles of liberty and justice. They're the principles of Republican democracy. They're the principles of a political creed, a political creed that, as Lincoln reminded us, uh, is the proposition that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. It's, it's the God-given natural rights, natural law foundation of the American public uh, or of the American regime, we might say to use that political science term regime of the American regime around which we have historically integrated ourselves as a people despite our differences. Now, there are times in our history when that has badly frayed. The worst produced a bloody shooting civil war, but we were able to come back from that. And I pray that we will never go down that path again. But I think we have reasons for concern and the appalling conduct that we witnessed yesterday, we're doing this broadcast the day after the invasion of the Capitol, the appalling conduct we witnessed of a mob invading the United States Capitol, breaking windows, battering down doors, occupying offices, a violent attack on the uh, symbol of our Republican democracy, the capital of the United States, should give us grave reasons for concern and worry that it could come again to something as dreadful as civil war. I don't think it will. I pray that it will not. But we can't just sit by and hope. Our prayers have to be uh, alongside our actions to restore the bonds of affection. You, you, were, you were quoting Lincoln there as well. The bonds of affection 
that we have in virtue of our shared commitment when we are, are at our best to the principles of the Declaration and the Constitution. Professor Gelzo, you are the world's foremost authority on Lincoln. Whatever happened to the mystic cords of memory and the bonds of affection that Abraham Lincoln, standing on the steps of that same Capitol building, once said should bind us together? Nino, I'm going to pretend that you did not say that I am the world's greatest whatever, <laughs> because I, I make no claim whatsoever to anything so exalted. Well, I made the claim for you. All right, I'll, I'll let that go by then. And I second it. <laughs> <laughs> but it is true, though, that those mystic chords that Lincoln talked about in his first inaugural, they have been fraying for a long time. Madison appealed to them in Federalist 14 during the state ratification debates for the Constitution because he feared that local state loyalties would prove so strong that they would repudiate a national constitution. Well, in Madison's time, that appeal to those cords of affection worked and the fraying healed. I mean, never perfectly, but, but enough. 72 years later, Lincoln made the same appeal and it didn't work. And as Robbie said, we got civil war. Part of my concern at this moment is that we are listening to neither Madison nor Lincoln or the better angels of our nature. We have done a terrible job of teaching our history as the history of all Americans. So in the place of memory, we have a vacuum. Or worse, what we got is a vacuum filled with cynicism and hopelessness. This, this has been my constant cry of warning for years to whomever will listen to me, to leftists, to rightists, to liberals, to conservatives, I don't care who. I, this is what I have been preaching for years. But as a result, we have mentally seceded from each other into self-defined interest groups, into, into victims whose strategy is the manipulation of guilt to obtain power, and, and cultural elites who've gated themselves into enclaves from which they regard others with contempt, and the enraged, the modern sans-culotte, who resent the sting of condescension, who feel ignored and, and now feel cheated. We have no Lincoln to direct us to those mystic chords. And even if we did, do we even know what they are anymore? On December 8th, 1941, you know, both houses of Congress walked together into the Capitol to hear Franklin Roosevelt pronounce the preceding day to have been a day which will live in infamy. The leadership of the two parties marched down the aisle arm in arm. Could that happen today? I dread the answer. Professor George, people today are trying to make sense of what it was that we saw happen on January 6th. What does the attempted occupation of the Capitol tell us about the state of our country, and perhaps more specifically, these rioters were attending a demonstration in support of a Republican president and were joined in protesting the 2020 election results by a few prominent Republican senators, considered by many to be rising stars in the conservative movement. What does that say about conservatism and conservative politics in America today? Well, there's certainly a, cont a contest for the soul of the Republican Party, a contest for the soul of uh, the conservative movement. Uh, the same is true on the other side, of course. There's a contest for the soul of the Democratic Party and the uh, progressive uh, movement. Uh, and it's not at all clear who's going to win that uh, contest. Uh, the President of the United States, Donald Trump, bears an enormous amount of responsibility for what happened yesterday. Uh, he has... Uh, urged people, including his own vice president, to resort to unconstitutional means to rectify a wrong that he thinks was done uh, to him. Uh, he's encouraged 
uh, his supporters to believe that the vice president of the United States could, in fact, do what he was asking the vice president to do, commit that unconstitutional uh, act. Uh, so there is no way to exonerate the president from responsibility. He also recklessly urged people to come en masse to Washington, D.C. as the normal constitutionally prescribed process of counting the electoral votes was to occur. Right. Uh, now, it's not that it was inevitable that something like the mob attack on the Capitol would, ha would happen, but it was possible. And taking into account that possibility, which became a reality, the president should have declined to urge that day for a mass demonstration. Uh, so there's got to be accountability on that. The president has to be held responsible for that. And yet it would be a mistake to suppose that Donald Trump is uniquely uh, responsible for what happened yesterday. Just as it would be wrong to say all of his supporters are responsible for what happened yesterday. I've never been one of his supporters myself, but there are plenty of people that I know and like, and I know are honorable and responsible people, members of my own family down in West Virginia, uh, the colleagues here at Princeton uh, who have been supporters of, uh, of, of President Trump. And they're as appalled as I am and as most Americans are at what happened yesterday. So let's not paint with too broad a brush. The other thing is we have to put this in context. There can be no double standards. This is not time for whataboutism or both sidesism. And yet, let's understand things in context. The left is, all, is correct to say we should understand things in context. And here's another occasion when we have to understand things in context. We have had rioting and looting and mob violence in cities across the United States for months now. Often uh, excused, not taken seriously, without proper uh, responses uh, from public officials. That's part of the context here. Uh, also, we have to understand if we were gonna give a, a, a sober sociological or historical account of what's going on without excusing any bad behavior, it was much bad behavior, you have to understand that we're in the middle of a public health crisis from which people are suffering, not only in terms of physical health and the, the physical risks of the COVID virus and the loss of life and so forth, that's all part of the context, but also the economic and psychological effects. A lot of people have lost jobs because work has evaporated. They've lost their means of livelihood, their living. They've lost the dignity of work. Even, even if you can come up with the resources to carry on, the financial resources to carry on, it's a terribly psychologically damaging thing to lose the opportunity uh, uh, to work. All that, of course, is in the background. And then the third and final thing I'll mention is, is, is just to repeat something that you uh, invited us to talk about at the beginning, and that is the context of extreme polarization and suspicion. Civic friendship in the United States has virtually collapsed. Republicans and Democrats, conservatives and progressives no longer regard each other as fellow citizens who might march down the aisle together in common uh, witness against some common enemy. We no longer regard ourselves as fellow citizens with whom we disagree, who we think are wrong about perhaps a very important matter or a set of very important matters. No, we, we are beyond that now, unfortunately. We think of our uh, fellow citizens with whom we disagree as our enemies to be defeated or even destroyed as the bad guys. And we live in these silos where people only listen to media or uh, read social media or read newspapers or uh, access information that comes from one side and reinforces what they already believe with all the biases and prejudices that inevitably get piled onto each other when that sort of thing happens. And that produces demonization. That produces the idea that, well, if you disagree with me, if I'm a conservative and you're a progressive, that means you know you disagree with me and, and you're evil. Or if I'm a progressive and you're a conservative, you disagree with me, you're evil. Uh, well, civic friendship cannot survive that kind of extreme partisan and ideological uh, 
polarization. So we've got to dig ourselves out of that hole. But all that is the context in which what happened yesterday occurred. Doesn't excuse any of it. Doesn't mean that people who are responsible for it should not be held responsible. That the people who actually invaded the building deserve to be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that they don't deserve that. They do and they should be. It doesn't mean that politicians shouldn't be held accountable. But it does mean we have to understand it in context and we have to make sure that we are not hypocrites. We are not imposing double standards. Lawlessness is lawlessness. It's to be punished, whether it comes from the right or from the left. It's to be deplored, whether it comes from the progressive side or the conservative side. We need to be consistent. Moral consistency should be the first order of the day here. As we try to understand what happened on January 6th, the storming of the Capitol in context, uh, Professor Gelzo, perhaps you could help provide some historical context. Has anything like this ever happened before in American history? Yes, it has, but the signs it illustrates are not encouraging ones. Now, my mind goes back to the 1850s when people like Abraham Lincoln believed that slavery was on the path to ultimate extinction. All that we needed to do to see the end of slavery was to keep it where it was and it would asphyxiate on its own. All right, then came the Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854, engineered by Stephen Douglas. It opened the West to legalized slavery. One piece of legislation, suddenly all the barriers were down. Lincoln said that he was, he was stunned, he was knocked flat, but then he and others began to rise, each holding a knife, a scythe, a butcher's cleaver. Now those, those were figurative weapons, not, not literal ones. But the idea was to fight back. But then came the Dred Scott decision in 1857, which seemed to make it impossible to keep slavery from expanding into the West. And Lincoln warned that it would only take one more Supreme Court decision to legalize slavery everywhere in the United States. And it was on that platform that he ran against Stephen Douglas for the Senate from Illinois and, and lost in an election that everybody knew was a cheat because of the malapportionment of the state of Illinois. So what happened? A year later, the abolitionist, John Brown, struck back by launching an attack on the federal arsenal at Harper's Ferry, hoping to galvanize a slave uprising. But it didn't end there because Lincoln, Lincoln was at first unsure whether to praise Brown for his courage or to condemn him. Lincoln was on a speaking tour in Kansas when the news of Harper's Ferry came. And Lincoln was at first unsure, what do I do about Brown? And in a way, this is the same dilemma conservatives have experienced, being unsure how to react to Donald Trump, not just in this situation, but for the last four years. Lincoln came down on the side of condemnation of John Brown in his, in his great Cooper Institute speech in February of 1860. And the good thing is that in November of that same year, Lincoln was elected president. But then, of course, the result was secession and civil war. So, you know, yes, we have been there before, but the message it gives us is it's dangerous ground. Professor George, you've spoken some already about the polarization we experience today, the silos so many live in. Can the divisions which have produced all the mob violence we've seen, not only on January 6th, but all through the summer of 2020, can these divisions be healed? I have to think they can. I have hope. But let's remember that hope is a virtue. <laughs> it's not optimism. Yeah. I wish I could say I had optimism as well as hope. Uh, I, I'm agnostic on optimism, but I do have hope. But to have hope means to resolve that we are going to do something with God's help to make things right. We're gonna restore the bonds of affection. 
We're going to make it possible for people to hear those mystic chords or understand those mystic chords of, of memory. Um, that takes action. It's what we try to do here in the James Madison program. Trying to help people, our undergraduates, our graduate students, people more broadly, to understand the sources of American unity in the principles of democratic republicanism of our constitution. And we trust that if they understand them more deeply, they will appreciate them more profoundly mm -hmm. and cultivate and nurture and protect them with greater determination. We don't tell people what to think, but we do try to help them to think more deeply, more critically and for themselves. I myself believe that anybody who truly understands the principles of the American founding rooted in the broader tradition, the great tradition, what Isaiah Berlin called the Western tradition, the central tradition of the West. I believe that anybody who truly understands those principles will embrace them, will be inspired by them, will want to defend them. But it's not our job to shove that down anybody's throat, student or otherwise. It's our job to present them to deepen people's understanding of them. And then they'll make up their minds for themselves. We do believe in people thinking independently. I also think, Nino, that we need exemplars and role models. People like Lincoln from our history. People like Martin Luther King. I've been thinking all day about Martin Luther King. Now, you know, we've recently learned about some dark aspects of King's uh, personality. He was a flawed human being like the rest of us. Uh, he had failings, uh, he committed wrongs, uh, and yet we rightly honor him uh, because he showed us that it's possible to inspire and to elevate people to correct injustices by recalling people to the better angels of their natures, by demanding that we go back and make good on the principles of the American founding, on the principles of the Declaration and the Constitution. And we do that by nonviolent means, by lawful means where we possibly can. Now, King famously broke the law, right? Ended up writing the letter from Birmingham jail, in jail, because he had broken the law, but not with violence, never with violence. King was absolutely committed to nonviolence. He would, under extreme circumstances, be willing as a conscientious objector to practice civil disobedience against unjust laws, but even then, never with violence, not breaking windows, battering down doors, attacking people. Uh, that was always off the table. There were people who wanted to, to ad, ad, advance the civil rights agenda with violent means, he always rejected them. So we need models like that. But our models cannot just be historical figures. We need exemplars of the decency and courage uh, that, 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 that we need in America today. We need exemplars who are living. Uh, we need people who will stand up and do the right thing even if it's unpopular unpopular on their side of the uh, divide. And we need people who will reach across the ideological divide and the partisan divide and make common cause where they can with people who disagree with them about some fundamental things. The, the witness that my dear beloved friend Cornell West and I try to give together is an effort in our own humble way uh, to, to, to demonstrate that it's possible for people to work together, to maintain bonds of affection, to truly love and honor each other despite significant differences. I'd like to see that sort of thing in all walks of American life. And I'd like to see more prominent people exemplifying that. Now, as Cornell would be the first and has been the first to point out, that doesn't mean the kumbaya stuff. That doesn't mean just putting on a show of uh, friendliness or polytests. It means truly listening to each other, engaging each other, engaging our differences, but in an honorable, respectful, truth-seeking, self-critical, intellectually humble and open way. End of sermon. Professor Gelzo, 
many people are looking at these divisions. They're looking at what happened on January 6th, and it seems as though things are reaching a boiling point, and we're wondering when it might spill over. And lots of people, I think, are wondering about an answer to this question, and I'm loath even to ask it, but is it possible that we are headed for civil war? Is that possible? And if so, what would something like that look like? You know, I was asked that question four years ago in an interview for the, for the Wall Street Journal. And then I said, no, 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 because civil war requires a certain critical mass, a, a concentration of resistance across geographical areas. And that just wasn't happening in, in 2017. Today, I'm not quite as sure. We're now looking at a vast geographical division between the two coasts and the interior heartland. Now, I don't expect a repeat of 1861. Uh, history, as they say, does not repeat, but it does rhyme. So I am fearful that what we may see are attempts at state nullification, reminiscent of 1832, at the development of armed no-go areas, such as John Brown planned to create, or even hideous gestures of guerrilla-like violence on the order of the Oklahoma City bombing. You know, I am an American. I must resist that. And no matter what the political persuasion or the political motivation, when someone raises their hand against that constitution, that declaration, that flag, they have at that moment made me their enemy. I was going to say that nothing yesterday brought anything to my memory more horribly than the Oklahoma City bombing. Except that this event in Washington was in one very important way worse. I mean, there were, there were many, many lives lost in Oklahoma City. But in 1995, the bombing was at least the act of only one individual, with maybe a few helpers, I forget the exact details, against a court building. This, on January 6th, was an attack. I mean, there's really no other word. It was an attack on the Capitol, on the place where presidents take their oath of office, the place where, where some of them have lain in state after their assassination. It's the place where the incidents of our history adorn the walls. You know, you stand in the rotunda and you look around, the Declaration of Independence, Yorktown, even in the stairwell, the Emancipation Proclamation. And you know, there's, there's a smallish monument to Flight 93. Because Flight 93, of course, was when people took charge of a terrorist hijacked aircraft that was intended to be flown to the Capitol. And rather, rather than permit that to happen, they spent their lives forcing that plane into the ground. An attack on the Capitol is an attack on all of us. It's, it's an attack on me. And that is the ugliest form in which I can imagine civil strife taking. And it is that which must be resisted, deplored, denounced, criticized, and taken and swept as far off the table of possibilities as hands and arms can, can sweep it. I agree uh, with Professor Gelzo that um, um, there's something really special in a bad way uh, about an attack on the symbolic center of our constitutional republic, an attack on the capital of, of the United States. Uh, it's it's horribly special in the way that the assassination of a president is horribly special. It's, it's an attack on the country itself. Uh, it's just, I mean, it's terrible when any person is killed, obviously any person is murdered, 
at, at a certain level, all human beings are equal and, and therefore all murders are, are equally horrible. But a political assassination of a president or other political figure, there's a special horribleness about it because it is an attack on all of us, an attack on us as a people, as it were, as a people constituted in a certain way, uh, a democratic people, a people of a Republican democracy. Uh, what worries me, uh, Alan, is that these things sometimes become tit for tat really quickly. One side's bad behavior provokes and, and rational, provides the basis of a rationalization for the other side's bad behavior. And we cannot pretend that this was the first recent act of political violence. We just can't, it's not true. There was the shooting of the Republican uh, congressman. Steve Scalise. Uh, uh, yeah, in which Steve Scalise was, was nearly murdered. He right. was permanently disabled uh, by, uh, uh, by a politically motivated gunman. Uh, there was the arson attack on the courthouse in Portland. Uh, there was the uh, physical assault of Ron Paul after the Republican convention. Uh, there have been uh, vandalism uh, against churches. Uh, and I don't think those are just religious attacks. I think those are political in nature uh, as well, at least in, 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 in many cases. It's what the church stands for in the, in the public uh, square that provokes the, the, the vicious uh, antipathy to the church that results in these uh, uh, vandalism attacks on churches. So I worry about this. One side says, well, look, you know, the other side's been doing this. They don't seem to suffer consequences. They, they get, uh, they, uh, they are excused. They're rationalized. They're justified. So why can't we do it? I think there was a book that was published uh, earlier this year, uh, at least got attention earlier this year, defending looting. When yeah. the, the thought was, well, my side's going to be doing the looting. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, people, you're playing with fire when you do that. People on the other side are going to take their cues from what you do. So I wish the people yesterday who did invade the Capitol and commit crimes and break windows and engage in intimidation, intimidating police officers and so forth, chasing a police officer, would stop to think, you know what? Folks who disagree with us are gonna escalate this further now, quite likely. They'll say these Trumpists, whatever you call their philosophy, populist uh, 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 nationalists, they, they uh, take uh, hardcore action well, we got to fight fire with fire. We'll take hardcore action. Just as undoubtedly the Trumpists were thinking, well, look, you know, Portland, Seattle, Kenosha, here in Washington, D.C., we've seen these left-wing mobs, these socialist mobs. Uh, we got to fight fire with fire. These things escalate. It becomes tit for tat very quickly. Someone's called it virtue spiraling. Not because the actions are virtuous, but because the people who participate in them have convinced themselves that these actions are virtuous. So it becomes a one-up of increasing and escalating violence. Yeah. But there is no virtue in this. And this is what we have to say. There is no virtue in this kind of violence. There is no virtue in mobs. Mobs do not help us reassert constitutional government. Mobs are the enemy, the subversion, the destruction of constitutional government. Because if constitutional government cannot be relied upon to settle matters between citizens, then the only alternative, and Lincoln laid this out in his Lyceum address in 1838, the only alternative is the turn to some kind of authoritarian. And whether it's an authoritarian of the right or an authoritarian of the left, it's still the same serpent. It's still a king, a dictator, a Napoleon, a Caesar, or an Alexander. That's the alternative we're embracing if we embark on these spirals. I think you're absolutely right, Alan. And that's why we have to stop it now. People, Honorable people on both sides have to just stand up and say, enough is enough. We're going to stop this on our own sides. We're, we're not going to tolerate this in our movements. Here's why I keep coming back to King. Um, 
King recognized, and we should recognize, that the right of protest, the right of demonstration is sacred. It's sacrosanct in the United States. We have a First Amendment, which protects the right of freedom of speech, which protects the right of the people peaceably to assemble and petition the government for aggressive grievances. That's what should have gone on yesterday, if anything was going to go on yesterday. Yesterday was a bad day to choose, but a peaceful demonstration. And I think that's what most of the people in Washington, D.C. wanted. I'm sure it is. And yet, there are always people who aren't satisfied with peaceful demonstration, with the King, the Martin Luther King approach. They've got to take the law into their own hands. And they're really a danger to all of us, as much to their own side as they are to their, to their opponents, which I think is your, uh, is your fundamental uh, point. And, and, you know, that, that I, I want to make clear here, uh, sometimes civil disobedience is required. That's a lesson from King too. It should be rare. It should be only under the most extreme circumstances. But even where civil disobedience is justified, King taught rightly, it cannot be violent. King said, when you've got to break an unjust law, you have to break it lovingly, peacefully, and with a willingness to bear the consequences. King went to jail. Yeah. He didn't try to escape. He was willing to bear the consequences as part of his witness. I think pro-life demonstrators who uh, uh, sometimes uh, chain themselves to the doors of abortion clinics to stop the killing of unborn children. Elizabeth Anscombe, the great philosopher, the famous philosopher, did this herself. Uh, when she was an elderly woman, she uh, she lived in England. She chained herself to the door of an abortion clinic to stop the abortions. She knew she was breaking the law, but she didn't do it violently. She did it lovingly with a desire to prevent the killing. And she did it with a willingness to accept the consequences, which did come. She was arrested and taken off to jail. Well, if you're going to, if you feel that the circumstances are so extreme that you do have to practice civil disobedience, it's got to be nonviolent. I'd like to turn in a second to how we can prevent this tit from tat spiraling out of control, as you two have, have alluded to. Just last week, we had Secretary Pompeo on the podcast, who spoke about the role the United States plays in serving as a beacon of freedom and of hope for Republican self-government to the world. And this was something our founding father certainly understood. So Professor George, what do you think will be the effect on the rest of the world as they watch what has been unfolding? Well, a lot of people in the world don't wish us well. Many do, thank God. Many try to emulate us. They know that people want to come to the United States for a reason. Now, part of that reason is just the extraordinary prosperity of this country. But part of the reason is also our system of Republican democracy and the freedoms that that, that system accords to Americans. That's why people come from all over the world. My ancestors came from, from Syria and from Calabria and Italy. Your ancestors uh, Nino, I know, came from uh, Sicily on the one side, and I think maybe from Ireland on the on the other. Alan, your ancestors from Sweden, uh, I know. They they're from all religions. There, some are Catholic, some are Protestant, some are Jewish, some are Muslim, some are Buddhist, uh, some are Hindu. Uh, they come from all over the world to this country. So there are plenty of people who understand us and wish us well. Those who wish us well undoubtedly were horrified by what happened yesterday horrified, since it seemed to put on the table and up for discussion <laughs> uh, the very premises that truly do make America great. You want to talk about American greatness? American greatness is in allegiance to those principles that were really under attack yesterday, an attack on constitutional processes. But as I said, there are many people in the world who wish us ill, and they were laughing up their sleeves. They were enjoying every moment of it. It made us look weak. It made us look small. It made us look not like a great power, but like a, just a, a, a tin pot regime. So uh, it was a moment when a lot of us were embarrassed and ashamed as Americans. Uh, but we've got to pick ourselves up, dust ourselves off, 
and move forward. We've got to deal with this. Um, as we pick ourselves up and dust ourselves off and move forward, I have two questions remaining, and I want both of you to provide an answer here. And we'll talk to the proverbial two sides of the aisle. Uh, Dr. Gelser, I'd like to start with you here. On January 20th, Joe Biden will assume the office of the presidency. What advice do you have for the incoming administration in the new Democratic majorities in Congress, but also for the media and our so-called cultural elites who so many feel have exacerbated the divisions we see today? Be wise. In the 1850s, slaveholders were so confident of their impending triumph based on the Kansas-Nebraska Act, based on the Dred Scott decision, based on the expectation that the next Supreme Court decision was going to give them everything they wanted all through all the states. They were so confident about that that they boasted, or, or they were believed to have boasted, there's some dispute, but boasted that they would one day soon hold slave auctions on the Bunker Hill Monument. Well, you can imagine the response that goaded anti-slavery people toward. When pro-slavery mobs burned down the Kansas town of Lawrence, the response was John Brown at Pottawatomie Creek and the murder of five pro-slavery settlers in the middle of the night in retribution. Not just taking them out and shooting them, hacking them to death. So my word is be wise, be careful, be careful what you provoke. To turn a blind eye to a hundred nights of mob rule in Portland, and then, as the Washington Post did yesterday, suddenly throw terms like sedition and treason at the mob at the Capitol, that's merely asking for more and worse of the same. That's virtue spiraling. My plea to the new administration is to listen. Listen to all the people. These elections have been very, very close. There is no mandate for one or another policy here. And what's more, you have to be aware the John Browns are out there. And the most statesmanlike thing you can do is to show the nation how unnecessary the John Browns are, how un-American the John Browns are, how they stand outside the mystic cords of memory that stretch from Lexington and Concord to Gettysburg to Iwo Jima. That's the message. If we want, if we want the division, if we want the hatred, if we want the partisanship to gentle down, those who are now sitting in the place of authority must take that as their prime responsibility to the whole people, not just as the moment of triumph for one's point of view that you can use as a stick with which to beat the heads of people you don't like and don't agree with. No, that's not statesmanship. That's just vindictiveness and only continues the spiral. Rise above it. Do better than that. And if we do better than that, we will all be better for it. Professor George, what advice might you have for this incoming administration and this new Congress? I would really echo Professor uh, Gelzo's advice. Remember, you have not been given a mandate. Uh, you uh, are leading now a badly, badly divided country. We're a 50-50 nation. Um, the progressives cannot push their agenda through without a very serious backlash, just as the conservatives couldn't. If you move too far, too fast, it'll not only be unwise politically, it will exacerbate the already dangerous level of polarization and hatred of citizen against citizen that has produced the events of the past few months leading up to the terrible events of yesterday. So I hope and pray that President-elect Biden 
will make good on his promise to try to be the president of all people, to be a unifier, but he's going to be under, under a tremendous amount of pressure, especially from his left, to go too far too fast in their direction. Uh, the, the, and I can understand their position. He couldn't have won without them. He had to make a deal. He had to bargain with the Sanders wing of the party, with the left wing of the party, with the squad. And they feel they're entitled as a result of supporting him, holding their noses, to get some of the spoils of the victory. So it's going to be hard for President Biden to resist that pressure. I hope and pray that he can. Now, something happened yesterday that's good news <laughs> that got lost because of all the bad news. And that was the administration, the new coming administration, incoming administration announced that Merrick Garland would be the attorney general. That's an excellent choice. The highly qualified, highly competent uh, lawyer and judge, uh, a distinguished person, and a moderate person. He's on the left side of the agenda. He doesn't think as I think, uh, the left side of the divide, I should say. But he's a sensible, sane, moderate person. Uh, exactly the kind of person I would like to see a democratic administration appoint. I, I, I hope that I don't jinx him by saying that or, or, or cause the, the, the hard left to uh, uh, oppose his uh, confirmation. But that's good. I mean, I, it, it's a good sign. I wasn't expecting uh, Vice President Biden, I'm sorry, President-elect Biden to, to make that kind of appointment, especially to a position as important culturally as the uh, uh, leadership of the Justice Department. Uh, I would have expected that the pressure from the left to appoint someone on the hard left uh, to a position like that would have been irresistible. But he resisted it. Good for him. I want to say attaboy, pat on the back. Uh, I, I, I don't think I'm going to be saying that very often, <laughs> but I say it now and I'm glad to be able to say it today after uh, what we saw yesterday. I'd echo that the appointment of Merrick Garland, I read in exactly the same way and read it because I was thinking at the same moment of a book that Philip Reef published just two or three years ago. It was entitled In Praise of Forgetting. That's not usually the title you would expect a historian to want to read, much less say good <laughs> things about, but, but Reef had been a journalist in the Balkans in the 90s, and what he saw were people who had been unable to forget anything. They had been unable to forget 600 years of history, and they were taking it out on each other in ethnic cleansing, in genocide. These were, these were people who could not, they could not, <laughs> they could not let loose of the Battle of Kosovo in what, 1367? So Reef wrote this book to suggest that, yes, historical remembrance is important, but there's also something important about some historical forgetting. There is health in looking above. There is health in looking beyond. One of the best things we can do is to start directing our attention in exactly that way, instead of incessantly going out with a view towards eviscerating and disemboweling our enemies. Let us turn our faces to the future and let us put by, there are things in the past we should put by. There are things in the past we should forget and let us bury them in forgetfulness and move on ahead. And I think that the appointment of Merrick Garland is a good sign that we can do that and, and that he is a person that can help us do that in a very important position that will help us do that. You know, could I say a word to the Republicans and the conservatives? Yeah, please do, both of you. I wanna to say to my fellow conservatives, let's remember that our nation's strength is in its commitment to our founding principles, to the principles of the Declaration and the Constitution. In any time of crisis, our first impulse should always be to repair to first principles, to the founding principles of the nation, renew our dedication to them. I wanna remind Republicans and conservatives 
We are not and we do not want to be an America based on blood and soil or thrown an altar. That is not us. We need to be an America that is exceptional precisely in finding its sources of unity in shared principles of liberty and justice. Those again of the Declaration and the Constitution. Let's not fall for the temptation, yield to the temptation to move in the direction of ethno-nationalism or religious nationalism or anything of that kind. Let's be patriots. Patriots, yes. Patriotism is good, but not ethno-nationalists, not religious nationalists. That's not the way to go. That's a repudiation of American exceptionalism. Now, let's also recognize that there have been serious problems with important large segments of our public that have not been addressed and need addressing. Wage stagnation over a period of decades, the destruction of our industrial base, these are bad things. And they did not, those things did not hit the wealthy and secure. They hit vulnerable sections of our population. Now, it would be wrong to write those people off or to regard their complaints and concerns as unworthy of our attention. They were right to demand that something be done about their plight. And Republicans should do something about that. And conservatives should think about what the right thing to do is in those cases. It's not that these concerns are illegitimate, quite the contrary, they are complete, perfectly legitimate and they've got to be addressed. And the establishment of both parties has not addressed them. The wealthy have gotten very, very much wealthier while we've had stagnation for everybody else, especially for the working class mm -hmm. of all races and ethnicities. So I would like to see a conservative movement rededicated to the principles of American exceptionalism, utterly rejecting blood and soil or thrown and alter European style conservatism. Uh, but at the same time, concerned with the plight of the working class and the poor, prepared to do something about it, consistent with America's founding principles, consistent with our constitutional government. Uh, I'd like to see the emergence of a movement that combines the best in economic populism with the best in social conservatism. That to me is what the conservative movement and the Republican party should stand for going forward. You, you know, Robbie, to bring up Lincoln again, which as you know, is my, <laughs> that's my default position. Lincoln gave a eulogy for Henry Clay in 1852. And he said that Henry Clay loved his country. He loved his country, first of all, because it was his country. And if you stopped right there, you think, uh, we're talking blood and soil nationalism. But Lincoln went on. He said, but he loved his country also because he believed his country showed that free men could be prosperous. Now, what he meant by that was that when you put into the hands of ordinary citizens the power of self-government, you had a confidence that they weren't going to botch it that they weren't incapable of ordering their own affairs, that they didn't need some aristocrats booted and spurred and ready to ride them on their backs. No, Henry Clay, according to Lincoln, Henry Clay loved his country because his country showed that ordinary people were capable of self-government because they were equal to each other before the law. Amen. If I, if I was to preach to conservatives today, I'd, I'd preach that, I mean, we're both channeling our, our great hero, Dr. Samuel Johnson, when we say, what do we do in a problem? Recur to first principles. That was Dr. Johnson's advice. What should we do then? Yes, exactly that. We need to work. We need to build. We need to teach. We need to be wise. And if the American experiment is true, if it does mean that free people can be prosperous, then we will find the right path. That path is not the path of John Brown. 
It is not the path of mob violence, such as, such as Lincoln denounced in the Lyceum speech. Mob actions only convince law-abiding people that there's no hope and that the only recourse is Caesar or Napoleon or Alexander. If, if the only conservative response is the one we saw yesterday at the Capitol, then I will write my resignation letter from conservatism tonight. Yeah. And if there are any political figures, any political figures guilty of emboldening them, I will be the first to stand with an arrest warrant for them in my hand. I say that by the bloody snows of Valley Forge, by the fields of Gettysburg and the 3,500 soldiers who are buried there, a quarter of whom are unknowns, I am dedicated to a proposition that all men are created equal. I have sworn an oath to protect and defend the Constitution, and I will rise or fall with that. There is a better way than what we have seen both yesterday and this past summer. There is a better way, and we must find it. I will add to that, Alan, and I agree with it all, that uh, the lesson from yesterday and from the past months should not be, as far as the establishment of this country in both parties is concerned, that uh, we, the establishment, are virtuous. If the result of what happened yesterday is to reinforce the establishment's sense of their own worthiness to rule, their own virtue uh, over ordinary people, uh, then uh, we will have lost even more than I think we have lost as a result of what happened uh, yesterday. Again, everybody from the elite to the most lowly should take the lesson of yesterday as being we need to be more faithful to our first principles. We need to remember them. There's some things need to be forgotten. Some things need to be remembered. What needs to be remembered, recalled, are those first principles of our Republican democracy. Fidelity to the Constitution by everybody, right, left, Democrat, Republican, and way too much deviation from our nation's founding principles and from the Constitution. And that's true in the executive branch, that's true in the legislative branch, and that's true in the courts. My three and a half decades in academia has been largely dedicated to trying to plead, plead, trying to plead with all three branches to be more faithful to the Constitution. Now stop trying to usurp the other branch's power. Stop trying to exercise power that hasn't been given to you under the, under the Constitution. Do not vitiate the Republican nature of our Constitution. You know, Lincoln said, referred to our, our government as government of, by, and for the people. All government is of the people. All good government, even the government of a benign despot, is for the people. But Republican government is government by the, by the people. I'm just here echoing what Alan said a moment ago, recalling uh, uh, Lincoln and the, and, and the tribute to Clay. Uh, uh, and so often, our elites, our establishment, have tried to take power from the people and exercise it themselves. In the name of the people, of course, they always claim to be acting for the people. But so often, it's been self-aggrandizing. It's been acting in the interests of the elite, the establishment, the powerful. That's, that's how we let decades of wage stagnation occur. And we mustn't allow that sort of thing to happen. There will be a reaction. People will not put up with it. We have basic core Republican uh, impulses in our hearts as Americans. And they will cry out when any elite decides that it's going to rule in its own interest instead of letting us be a truly self-governing people. Our guests today have been professors Robert P. George and Alan C. Galzo. Thank you both so much for being here with us today.
Thank you, Nino, and thank you, Robbie. Thank you, Alan. Thank you, Nino.